Welcome in, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, thanks so much. If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, also thanks so much. Um, as you know, I decided to start some um, interviews with, with colleagues and friends. Recently, we had one with Lama Karma uh, that just got released on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. And today, we have another one of my uh, dear friends, Scott Snibby, um, who is the host, creator, all-around badass of uh, the, the actually, I would call it a widely successful Buddhist podcast called A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment, or maybe maybe Scott, you call it a, a meditation podcast. We'll, we'll find out, uh, probably both. And so um, just, just really wonderful to have Scott, where we have some uh, really uh, interesting topics to discuss and, and share with you today. So, so yeah, welcome, Scott. Uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot, Scott. It's great to be here. Yeah. So um, I, I first came on, I mean, we've known each other for a long time. I'd, I'd love to give the audience some background. I mean, I, th I think I've known you most of the time I've been practicing meditation. I mean, a, a definitely a majority of the chunk. I can't remember. We met in 2004 or something like that. Yeah, I think uh, my brother introduced us and we met in Boston when you were studying music at Berkeley Berkeley College, something like that. So I remember hanging out in the pizza place there after seeing the Dalai Lama, things like that. That's, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so we always like cross paths because, because Scott's brother, um, for those of you listening, he, he, the first Buddhist center I started out was uh, called Kurukula Center in Boston, Massachusetts. And Scott's brother was a, a regular there. And so, so, um, yeah. So I'd see you time to time when you'd visit and things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, this is, this is really, uh, uh, a joy for me to be able to talk with you because not only do I respect your work, but we're, we're old Dharma buddies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, I was on your podcast also, I think like a year ago, something like that. Um, yeah, I really ago. enjoyed, I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. We had to cut out some of the swear words, but <laughs> it, was a, it was an awesome episode. People loved it. <laughs> oh man. I'm had so to sorry put the about e, that. We had to put the E on that episode. <laughs> That's oh man. So it's just like I'm like your only explicit guest uh yeah. on, on there ever. Yeah. Was that after you <laughs> after you stopped being a monk? Did you like cut loose again? <laughs> I think there was a period where I just yeah, I there is some truth to that. I think there was a period where I was just like, you know, you, you swung to one side and I needed to swing to the other. And now um I, I do have to put an explicit on this podcast because I have some older content that, you know, I, I still want to share, uh, but actually I, I tend to not, yeah, I tend to behave a little bit more <laughs> these days. Right. <laughs> I, I do have a daughter now. And so, you know, things change. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I really enjoy that. And, and, you know, just for those of you out there, um, I hope you'll check out, if you haven't already, I hope you, you'll check out Scott's podcast, um, uh, Skeptics Path to Enlightenment. We're going to talk about it a little bit today. Um, it, it's just really a, a, a wonderful, um, podcast and he has, you know, I mean, you've, you've had, um, uh, share some of the guests, you had really amazing Tukten Jimpa on there. Um, yeah, Robert, Robert Thurman, Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo, Ven Venerable Sage Kadro, um, a lot of incredible teachers. Yeah. yeah so it's really, it's Dr. Really Jan a, Willis is amazing. Twice we had yeah. Dr. Jan Willis, which was amazing. Wonderful. You know, Jan is interesting because. I guess she's gotten more known, but she, for me, for a lot of years, she wasn't that well known as a Buddhist teacher. And she's really like an OG, you know, I'd call it just like an amazing, you know, old school. 
there are very Dharma. few people like her yet. Such a deep, deeply accomplished scholar, a an accessible uh, writer, <laughs> and also an extraordinary practitioner. Like the depth of her experience, and that and that she's willing to speak about too, is really extraordinary. So just an, an incredible being. <laughs> really yeah. in awe of her. So check that out, everyone, if you haven't already. Yeah, she did. And the, the last episode I did with her, you know, because she does a lot of work around um, race. Obviously, she's black. Yeah. But yeah. the last episode I did with her, I asked her to answer the question, what is enlightenment? <laughs> a very difficult question. And it was an incredible episode that she went into. Um, many, many thoughts about enlightenment from different traditions. You know, the idea of an enlightenment, that's a full stop. And then you suddenly know everything and um, are able to manifest throughout the, the universe and see into everyone's mind. Um, you know, I have my own, I think we'll get into it a little bit later, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I have my own skepticism about that idea of enlightenment. And she talks about other ideas of enlightenment, say ones that were enlightenment, like the Japanese idea of enlightenment, Satori, where it's yeah. more beginning you know that you've you've crossed an on you've opened a door and that's the beginning of a whole journey that um maybe lasts forever an infinite infinite growth which at least to my mind appeals more and resonates more but yeah. not like I have any direct knowledge of it yeah same you, you know but you, you know yeah we're kind of getting into some of the later material I like to talk about it but <laughs> yeah. it's okay we could flow um yeah the um yeah you know that that resonates with me too that's kind of something i've been playing with a hypothesis, you know, as I study the Dharma more, and of course my experience is quite low, mm -hmm. you know, my, my, my thinking mind is way ahead of, of where my actual experience is, uh, in the sense of just, you know, what I project, uh, which I don't think is so healthy, but, but I, but I do agree with that. It, it seems like if, if enlightenment is beyond time, why would there be an end? You know, how could you say like enlightenment is this kind of full, maybe not a full stop, but this kind of experience that you get into, cause then it would be impermanent again, you know, so you get into these, philosophical, logical yeah. conundrums, right? Problems. Oh yeah. Like Robert Thurman says, once you become enlightened, uh, it's retroactive. <laughs> he says, <laughs> it's as if you were always enlightened. But he says, it's not like you're enlightened now, but once you become enlightened, it's as if you were always enlightened. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another that kind of paradox, paradoxical statement. I mean, even science itself though says, there is no time, you know, there's from a scientific yeah. perspective, time is one of these head scratchers because the equations of, of physics and the universe don't actually indicate that time exists. That, like to the best yeah. of understanding, time is a psychological phenomenon. <laughs> so that's probably where, that's probably where all of these problems come from. It's just our, our psychological idea of time doesn't line up with um, how time exists or even if time exists in a deeper yeah. sense. So, um, you know, I, I just want to ask you just so so my audience or whoever is listening to this can can get to know you a little bit. So so just kind of a little bit about your background. How, how did you come to study and practice the Dharma? Um, I'd, lo I'd love to kind of know that. Yeah. So how did I come to study and practice the Dharma? So I was I have a really weird spiritual upbringing because I come from a, you know, ethnically Jewish family and my parents were. um most all my grandparents really weren't religious, you know, in in their in their own ways, in communistic ways, you know, like a lot of Jews in New York in the 
the 20s, 30s. Chinese food on Christmas kind of thing. Yeah. 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 yeah among <laughs> other things. Yeah. Um, the old family movies have little, little busts of Lenin in the background of like wow. satyrs and stuff like that. But um, I, my parents converted to being Christian scientists and I was raised a Christian scientist, ah. which actually is a great preparation for Buddhism because its philosophical stance is actually very similar to the mind only school of Buddhism. Uh -huh. Like Christian science actually says there is no material reality. There's only the mind. Oh. And so I was raised with that and Christian science are better known for not going to the doctor, <laughs> which is <laughs> one of the tenets I don't really, <laughs> I don't really um, believe in. And I never joined the church because I was quite a logical, I love math. I love science. Yeah. I was quite logical. And I loved going to Sunday school and talking about big, the my whole life I loved invis the invisible things about life were the ones that... Mm. Um, captivated me the most, like what happened, where, where did you come from before you were born? What what happens when you die? Um, ideas of infinity. I used to actually wake up with a very strong feeling of infinity every morning wow. for probably the first 10 years of my life. I would just wake up and be like, whoa, <laughs> just this <laughs> feeling. Like, actually, like the, actually the DMT quite, was pumping in your brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, actually quite a feeling of, of actually past and future lives. So actually thinking I've lived wow. forever. I'm going to live forever. Um, wow. a very beautiful experience, you know, wherever it came from. But anyway, I, I never joined the church because it's, it didn't make sense to me. You know, everybody dies, everyone gets sick. That's kind of obvious. So yeah. I don't, praying doesn't make you better, although it can, it, it can help, you know, cause having a positive state of mind, uh, at least for yourself. Yeah. So when I was, I had a kind of godless period in my 20s where I had no religion. And it was really hard. I, I found it very difficult to find a, a, a happy basis in life just with like the messages I was hearing around me of, you know, career and so on. Like even you can say materialism, but not the worst materialism, just you know, like career mm -hmm. relationships. I felt I kind of felt like I needed something deeper to to ground myself in, in um you know, the, the deeper aspects of the universe and reality. So the way I became a Buddhist was through my brother, Chris, who you know, and you met before yeah. you met me, because he became a Buddhist in the, um, in the late 90s, because he married a Chinese woman and they went to China and Tibet and he encountered Buddhism there, which is a great story I'll skip because we don't have time. But he <laughs> kept sending me Buddhist books, books by the Dalai Lama in particular, uh, for about four years. And to be honest, I thought my brother was getting brainwashed. I was really worried that, because <laughs> yeah. he's very funny. You know him. He's very funny. Yeah. He's very irreverent. He's like a, a, hard, a, a punk rock skateboarder. Yeah, yeah. And photojournalist is his job. And I was worried he was going to lose his personality, lose his sense of humor. Uh, but to, to, to cut it short, he didn't. I noticed that after four years of observing him that it actually made him more kind of compassionate and open um, while you know, not changing his personality, you know, really at all, the, the good parts of his personality. So he kept sending me these books. And I'll tell you, to be honest, I could not understand them. The books by the Dalai Lama he sent me um, were either kind of too shallow, like Art of Happiness is such a bestseller, yeah. but I, I couldn't really find that much gems of wisdom in that book, to be honest. Um, yeah, and then and then deeper books, which I just didn't understand. I felt like Tibetan Buddhism was really complicated and I didn't get it. But... Uh, I knew my brother loved the Dalai Lama and I really liked the Dalai Lama's um, biography, you know, autobiography, which was, I found very inspiring. So 
in 2000, I invited my brother to come see the Dalai Lama in Los Angeles because I said, I'll yeah. buy you tickets. I'll buy your plane ticket. I'll buy you a ticket. Let's, let's go hang out. I know you love the Dalai Lama and I have a lot of patience. I actually had more patience then than I think I do now. I said, I have a lot of patience. I can sit through this and I'm curious who this guy is. So uh, we went there and the minute I saw the Dalai Lama, I wanted to become a Buddhist. Like that mm. was it. I just thought, wow, what an extraordinary mm. being because I knew what he went through. I knew about a million of his people dying and yet he still had such compassion and humor. And then the teachings he gave were, were really extraordinary. So it was really yeah. more from his example as a human being that I wanted to become a, I wanted what he was having, you know, <laughs> like let me, I want what he's having. And so I found a teacher. There was, from a Buddhist perspective, you might say there was a, a lot of karma involved. From a secular perspective, you might call it like coincidence or serendipity. But my brother's teacher, Geshe Sulga, it turned out was was best friends with Geshe Dakpa. So when I, when I went to ask my brother's teacher who I could study with, he said, oh, my, my closest friend from monastery is teaching in San Francisco, Geshe Dakpa. So I started studying in San Francisco at Sei Chenling with the Geshe Dakpa. And um, that's how I got into Buddhism, but it was yeah. super gnarly and hard to understand and bad translations. I mean, I have notebooks just scrawled. It's like one sentence that's five pages, you know. Um, I remember the first teachings I went to were on the 12 links of dependent origination, which is one of the most difficult Buddhist topics to understand. But yeah. um, I think just the just knowing the result of Buddhism, like seeing seeing the nuns in the center and how they behaved and some of the older practitioners and, and especially my teacher, I just thought, well, you know, you can see the result. This path is super complicated and maybe weird. Like weird is a good word for it from our perspective. Weird is, is um, subjective. Like it's not weird yeah. to Tibetans. It's the most natural thing, but to us it's very foreign and strange. Um, but yeah, I studied for a long time and, and got into it. So that's how I got into Buddhism. Cool. Wonderful. Um, yeah, and Geshe Dakpa, he's kind of like another OG for me. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know of him because he's, you know, kind of a pretty humble, you know, um, Geshe is, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a, is a title for um, a monastic accomplishment of study uh, in, in a Galupa monastery in the, in the Ningman Kagyu. It, it's, it's, they have a Kempo degree. So it's like a degree, like you'd get a college degree, but, um, but Geshe Dakba is actually an incredible practitioner too. And so it kind of, a lot of people don't know that. And he spent a lot of time going around the Himalayas. He spent time with Dogo Kensen Rinpoche. And there's mm -hmm. just a lot of really cool things in his life that, you know, that remain with him or a few close people because he's just a kind of a hidden practitioner. You know, he's an incredible teacher, a little bit intimidating because he rarely yeah. smiles. You know, he's like, mm. <laughs> but I spent a lot of time with him and, um, yeah, we, you know, we studied, there's certain texts we study over and over again in the, in our lineage, you know, this Galukpa lineage. And, you know, we studied Shanti Deva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. I think maybe three times with Geshe -la, I studied it and Lam Rim over and over again yeah. and other texts. But yes, he's a very, very inspiring, inspiring teacher. A lot of it's from his behavior, you know, yeah. because uh, some of the greatest lessons were just to watch how humble he was because he's obviously one of these greatest living teachers, one of the last trained in Tibet. But I remember, you know, students asking, I remember once a student asking him over and over again, <laughs> you, you know, oh, we, we studied this last week. You know, I remember we were doing some, <laughs> some topic and the student said, oh, we already went over that part last week. And, and Geshe said, oh, you know, well, 
um, you know, what, well, we're going to, you know, review what we did last. And this person said, no, no, yeah. but I'd like to get the new material, you know, <laughs> <laughs> of course. And then, yeah. and then, and then, and then finally he said, actually like, oh, you know, um, being bored with the material is a sign that you haven't learned it. <laughs> you know, I, I had to learn that lesson too. Yeah, exactly. It's funny yeah. like that. It's funny like those simple things take a while yeah. to get. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah, anyways. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Um, the, oh, I, what I, sorry, I, I forgot in the introduction, but, but, but uh, for those of you out there, Scott is also, um, so there's, I also did say there's two Scots here, so you might get confused. You know, I'm Scott too. So he's Scott's Navy, probably it says in the Zoom thing. But anyways, just in case we, uh, I don't, we don't, you know, you can never have too many Scots, I guess. There's so <laughs> many Scots of our generation, and um, surprisingly, so many of them are Jewish too. I don't know why I have so many. <laughs> So many Jewish parents name their kids Scott. I think probably to hide their Jewishness. I have a theory. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's an astronaut. I think there was an astronaut named Scott at the time that inspired oh. a lot of a lot of people because the name uh, yeah, just peaks peaks around 1969 when I was born and then oh. and then kind of dies off. I was born in 1980, so maybe yeah, yeah. You know, it makes that makes sense because my my parents. I mean, I think I think it was hippie Jewish parents probably who also just. <laughs> wanted to get away yeah they wanted to get away from the norm which is their roots like my my parents did it because they were being pressured from both sides like both grandparents mm -hmm. to name me after them and they're like well well screw you both we're just gonna name him scott which is like yeah <laughs> it's um, a strange name i don't feel like a scott i don't feel like yeah. a scott, but you know i'm gonna ride it out <laughs> yeah it's funny i i've had that thought and then i'm like well what do i feel like and i'm like well i don't know like I know that else sounds, so, you know, so that might as well be a Scott. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, Scott's to be here. Um, I, I, you know, was introducing. I forgot. So Scott's also a Dharma teacher. So um, you know, besides having the podcast and this wonderful podcast, the Skeptics Path to Enlightenment, he also teaches. So hopefully, we'll be able to get into that and, and kind of like your relationship to to teaching the Dharma a little bit later. But I just wanted yeah. to say that. And I, I hesitate to use the term teacher. I my fa I think my favorite term is a teaching assistant. I okay. like that a lot, a, a lot, um, because um, I mean, you know, in our tradition, you can't like volunteer to teach. You somehow need to yeah. be invited. And for whatever reason, you know, they invited me to start leading meditations, which I um, I thought a lot about, and I asked my teachers, and and they all said it was a good idea because. Um, it was beneficial for people to learn from up here, like to to learn side by side from someone who has the same level of delusions and and um, <laughs> same cultural background and so on. So that was why I got some good advice from like Venerable Sangay Kadro and Venerable Renee and and people like that. But I like to just say I'm a teaching assistant because okay. that's the thing is we have such a high standard. You can call me whatever you want; it's fine. But sure. we have such a high standard in our lineage for what a teacher is, and um, yeah. I know where I fall short of that ideal, but still you can be of benefit. My friend Sujata Baliga, who I just love, another another kind of practitioner of our generation, um, she says, you know, you don't have to perfect be perfect to do good in the world. And yeah. so that's that's my mantra when it comes to teaching is it's surprising how much good you can do uh, without having any realizations. I think, so. Totally. I agree. I mean, <laughs> I can attest to that actually, you yeah. know, and, and I mean, it's funny. I get sometimes comments where people think 
I'm trying to be some kind of teacher or guru. And actually, I don't even think of myself. I'm similar to you. I don't think of myself like that. I mean, we unfortunately, we need words and labels to describe what we do. So if I'm to describe directly, I'll say, yeah, I'm giving a Dharma talk or a Dharma teaching or I mentor people in Buddhism and meditation. Um, this is a whole another podcast we probably could have because uh, I think it's an important topic. Uh, we don't have to get in the weeds if you don't want to. But but yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of tough because in, inwardly, I don't feel I, I just feel like me and I just want to be myself with others. And, and if people want some support, I can share some support on meditation and Buddhism with them through this podcast or whatever. But but as far as the label goes, I don't care. I'm, it's just whatever is descriptive of what it is. You know? Yeah. And, and the thing is, the, the, the world we live in, there's a fire hose of information, right? And if you're watching this on YouTube, that's, the, that's one of the primary um, <laughs> delivery mechanisms for that fire hose. So we really need more channels like this. Like what you'd like to see is 24 hours of people talking about the Dharma, spirituality, the nature of reality, how to be a good person, how to accept different points of view, um, how to bring out your best, how to, how to make a better world. Like we need the same, the same level of fire hose of that kind of virtuous material as we have of, you know, other type, other types of material, um, including material that, you know, radicalizes people and, and divides people. So I'm, I'm all for it. I think we all, everybody has, you know, something to, everybody has some level of wisdom to add, like, especially if it's a constructive message. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, uh, I'd love to have this chat more. Um, it wasn't planned for today, but whatever we can, we're, we're no, kind no, of we meandering. And, the other and, stuff. And, yeah. No, but, but it's interesting because, uh, you know, it made me think of, I thought, you know, this topic, uh, um, is kind of dear to my heart because it's, it's what I do for both, um, bright livelihood and also for just yeah. a jo- what I, how I want to live my life in, in relation to uh, others. I love, you know, being able to share meditation and Dharma with people and support people in that um, through through mostly my my mistakes and struggles. You know, that's yeah. mostly what, it, what what ends up happening. Uh, of course, study. But but, you know, I, I'm hoping through some of my struggles, I can save those struggles. But, you know, I could save other people from having to go through them. Mm-hmm. Uh, by sharing some some you know practical tips and some some ideas with them, but um, you know around kind of titles and things like because you you know as you know Scott Tibetan Buddhism is very hierarchical, and mm-hmm. sometimes that that feels icky or dirty or sort of um, I don't know um, pick your pick your word mm-hmm. to describe it you know uh to us as westerners because we we want to have this illusion that we're democratic <laughs> and, yeah. and i say that specifically i think it's it's a type of illusion and so Kondra rinpoche who's an amazing uh one of the few female rinpoches or tulkus to actually be recognized mm-hmm. as a tulku in the tibetan tradition um she had this wonderful uh uh, uh she, she had a wonderful thing to say about this where she said she actually felt that that healthy hierarchy is necessary, meaning like having titles and sort of, you know, all, all of that um, is, is, ne- is, is good if it's done in a healthy way and necessary because otherwise what you're going to have is um, covert um, hierarchy. hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So, she, you know, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing her, but it's sort of like with overt hierarchy, it's just it's there. And with the illusion of democracy, you know, you kind of put this thing, oh, we're democratic, but actually underneath is a covert hierarchy happening. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of problems can happen because because it's kind of hidden. Where if you put it up there and in the front, you say, this this person is this and that and that, 
um, it can help. It's not perfect, but it can help to avoid some of those problems. And something I've been reflecting on because it's sort of like, you know, I think how we come off within a role is where the meaning is, not what the title of mm. the role is. And, and I think, like you said, in traditional Buddhism, we're, we're, we don't take a title. You know, we don't, we don't, and, and that's what's tricky for me for a long time. It's been really difficult to teach. You know, I was under this, just as, as you've heard, you know, this kind of stricter idea of how we teach, which is you always have to be invited to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, there has to be an invitation. And I followed that for many, many years, especially as a monk. And then at some point I just realized, but nobody, like, that's not how the West works. Yeah. So like, should I, should I be requested to do a podcast before I do it? And, you know, in a certain way, people ask me all the time to do stuff. So mm -hmm. you, you can kind of think of that as a request, but you know, I, I do value that in the tradition that, th that we need to be requested to teach because it keeps the teacher humble Yeah. where they're not out there kind of, you know, uh, uh, self-aggrandizing. And it also makes sure the student really wants the teaching, you know, so there's, yeah. But how do we do this? You see what I'm saying? So it gets so there's yeah. So complex. Well, I mean, this is a this is a really good question about um, you know, and in and in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, they call this guru devotion is a topic. It's an even more kind of more intense phrase. But yeah, so I mean, the the bottom line on this one, I totally agree, and I even use some of the same words in talking to people about this because this this idea of democracy has kind of broken down to everybody deserves your criticism, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and um. I think just to see the flip side of that too, that everybody deserves, you know, your respect and that some people really do deserve admiration. I think each of yes. us can make a, a list, maybe a short list of people we really admire in life, living living or dead. And I think that's that's at the root of, you know, growth is finding the mentors and people who are more advanced than you in some direction, you know, in, in the secular terms, you would find someone more advanced in your career to help you coach you with that. But in spiritual terms, you find someone who's more, a little bit more advanced or a lot more advanced in evolving their mind towards kindness, compassion, generosity, wisdom, human patience, you know, non-reactivity and, and things like that. I think the thing is, um, we have these kind of all or nothing ideas about about hierarchy and, and a lot of it comes from the military and from schools mm. where you have you still have a kind of absolute authority, at least in the mm. generation we grow up in. I think in newer generations, it's it's actually quite much softer. But, you know, one thing, my teacher, Venerable Rene and, and Geshe Dakba are, are my two, yeah. the two teachers I'm really closest to and spent the most time with. And, um, you know, Venerable Rene has given some really clear instructions about respecting your teacher, which just comes straight from the text. One of them is that, you know, it's a voluntary, <laughs> it's a voluntary relationship. You know, you, ch you choose whether to take on a teacher and actually your teacher can decide whether to take you on too. Yes, and exactly. normally the, the, there's a trial period of how long you evaluate the person and that time period is 12 years <laughs> in, yeah, in yeah. our tradition. So to spend a really long time evaluating someone. The other thing I think that's, that's a more, a better known point in our tradition. A lesser known point in our tradition is you don't have to do everything your teacher tells you to do. No, and don't. I think that's something a lot of people don't realize. They think yeah. it's like a cult or something like that. Yeah. That once you accept someone as a teacher, you just you know jump off a bridge, whatever, go totally, you know, some sexual issues, things like that. And no, yeah. that's not the case. You yeah. you use your wisdom to decide um, whether to follow your teacher's advice, even if it's a very high teacher. It may not be the right thing for you at the right time.
So with those totally. and with those two pieces of advice, I think you can have healthy respect and healthy like hierarchical relationships um, without making you know moral missteps or yeah. um, giving up your 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 own sense of right and wrong and autonomy. Totally, yeah, one, yeah, beautifully said. And I think you know the you know this is just it's so difficult because it's so nuanced and complex mm. because it's embedded with culture you know this is on my list to talk about today mm. as well about kind of like like what parts of buddhism are embedded in tibetan culture and what what mm. what aren't what are what are just culture and i think it's very difficult to discern that much more difficult than most people actually think including myself and so you know the the, the teacher student relationship just just as another nuance to talk about it's like teacher-student relationship in Buddhism, at least in Tibetan Buddhism, there's many different styles of teacher-student relationship. Not, not all the relationships are guru-student. You know, guru is really a mm-hmm. word reserved for Vajrayana. It's not really yeah, a, a yeah. word in Sutrayana. You know, we have Kalyana Mitra or, you know, you have professor relationships with teachers or meditation kind of like helper, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, so there's, I think there is places as Western teachers to fit into that hierarchy is what I'm saying, where, where, you know, you and I are, are not going to be a guru for someone, but we certainly can, can be like a professor or, you know, in certain mm-hmm. areas or, or, or just a friend who, who knows a little bit more, like you said. I mean, and, and the basic, if you read the Lam Rim, like the basic quality, or I'm not sure if it's in Lam Rim, but it's, it's in a text on, on teacher student relationships. Um, the basic quality to be able to teach Dharma is you have to, you know, you have to know, know a little bit more than someone, yeah, you know, and, and that's it. And so it's, 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 you know, but again, knowing where we're at and knowing, I think being really honest, the teacher has to be really honest with themselves where they're at. So they don't have any illusion in fooling themselves. They're more advanced than they are. And then I think, and, and then the student also has to know what they're looking for. And the teacher has to be honest. If the student's looking for the guru and, and, you know, I'm not a guru. The, the teacher has to be honest. I can't lead mm-hmm. you in that, you know, because I don't have that experience and knowledge. But I can do this with you and 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 plug you into other people who do have that mm-hmm. experience. So I feel like being a teacher, you know, in this lineage or in a teacher assistant, <laughs> um, it, it actually means like we're 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 engaging with people as a friend, as a Dharma friend, and then we're yeah. plugging them in to to a whole set of lineage, you know, including people. Who, who can really lead them to enlightenment. So I kind of feel it's it's like that. And um, oh, there's one more thing I wanted to say uh, around this nuance. Um, yeah, because you were talking a little, you were, you were bringing up, you know, what for me is this whole conversation around agency in student-teacher mm-hmm. relationship. And for me, anytime agency is either being requested to be given up or we're voluntarily giving it up, it means there's something going wrong in the yeah. teacher-student relationship. Yeah. And it, what, you know, the way I see, uh, now we'll, I'll use the term guru in the Vajrayana sense. Mm-hmm. The way I see the, 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 the guru-student relationship happening in the Vajrayana um, uh, is, is actually, um, it's actually to refine one's agency. So it's actually the yeah. opposite of what some people think it is. Some people think, yeah. oh, you're just becoming this worshiper. Actually, no, it's the opposite. The guru's there as a mirror and you go into this very intense intimate relationship with them so your agency gets refined into non-dual wisdom so it's a whole different to me it's a whole different thing than what i think a lot of people think it is in popular culture you know yeah it's very radical and it's very um empowering i think the dharma um if only there were simple answers you know at at one (laughs) level of the dharma there are there's, you know, there's, there's a Buddhist 10 commandments, you know, and seven out of the 10 are the same as the Christian ones. 
Um, (laughs) But (laughs) but that's like the earliest level. Like there's, you know, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit sexual misconduct and things like that. But the thing is, the deeper you go into Buddhist ethics and also just looking at the reality around you, if only there were such simple answers. You know, every moment in your life is so unique and so new uh, in your relationships and politics and in social action. Like if only there were simple answers. And, And that's what the Dharma is so great at is giving you that that personal grounding to be very flexible actually because yeah. it's not about just applying the right rule at the right time it's the flexibility of trying to see what's happening in a particular situation and how you can be of benefit and and to be a benefit at a particular moment very often involves completely opposite behavior from one yeah. situation yeah. to the next you know um i think we learn this a lot in thought transformation that yeah when you're in a conflict um, strangely, not always, but strangely, often the best thing to do is actually to be very, very nice to the person that just harmed you, which is, um, mm. I'm sure a lot of the audience is cringing hearing that right now. <laughs> and that for good reason, like there's a lot of times you don't want to do that, especially if you're of a, a class of people that have been systematically oppressed and so on. Yeah. Um, but still from a skillful means of just getting the outcome you want, if you actually want the outcome of harmonizing, like say with your neighbor, you know, you have a conflict with or someone at work or so on. Um, from this tradition, a lot of time, you know, the most skillful path to that is actually being very, very nice to them and realizing that your conflict actually has very little to do with you yourself and your ego, mm-hmm. that it's some long caused effect in that person's mind and um, helping them to heal, you know, their own anger and trauma will actually give you the result you want too of of you know harmony or even or even a thing you want from the, a thing or an action you want to get from them you know even a person you think of as your enemy so this is where it's a very radical it's a very yeah. radical path and it's very different from the confrontational society we live in today where it's very self-righteous and confrontational and also like rule-based you know the culture yeah. we're living in right now that there's a, a quite a long list of rules on on the extremes of um, both, you know, both sides of, of the, of the big kind of cultural conflicts we have today. And I think, you know, the, the way that these things will get resolved is probably through much more flexible thinking than, than rigid thinking. I love it, man. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there and I think, I think, yeah, you're correct. I think that, you know, that this, this flexibility is the key and it's sort of, you know, to me that, that also strikes this, this point of like what skillful means because skillful means can mean a lot of different things within buddhism you know yeah. a lot of you know it actually goes beyond kindness it just means that the root of it is compassion for me if we're yeah. if those kind of like to simplify it skillful means means that it has to the base has to be compassion and the activity can be different can be vast depending on the situation but like you said you know these days it's tough because there's a lot of self-righteousness there's a lot of rigidity and views you know, I would even, you know, I'm, I'm starting to play with this word Puritanism, Puritanism as sort of a yeah. form of not just religious Puritanism, but even just sort of ideological Puritanism. And it just gets embedded. And then, and then, you know, it's funny because like then we try to be like nonconformist, but actually we're being the most conformist, you know, yeah. sometimes. So it's, it's very odd. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're really not thinking for yourself, I mean, again, this is where Buddhism is so powerful because yes, we have you know, gurus and teachers and texts and and so on. But 
really what Buddhism teaches you to do is to think for yourself and to be, mm -hmm. and this lineage, this lineage is very critical. So to, to be critical and to think for yourself. And um, I think if whenever you find yourself just saying something that you read or someone else told you, or that, um, or that is, um, what do they call it? Um, you know, that's, that's sort of d d virtue signaling. They, they call it sometimes, yeah, yeah, virtue signaling, right? Yeah. Where you're sort of saying things because you think it makes you look like a good person. Um, it's nice or to go back like to- Or feel like a good person, I would argue. Or feel like too. a good person, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but to go to like your own first principles, you know, this is where it's nice to spend, this is what meditation is really great for actually sometimes, mm -hmm. I think, even if you're doing it out for a walk, is to really think about like, what do I think about this topic or this conflict? And what does the other person think about it? What's their perspective? Um, I think whenever whenever you come to a point like of saying, I can't understand why X, Y, Z, um, that's an invitation to try and understand, mm. to try and understand, even if not, not to be convinced by their point of view, but actually to better, to better yeah. change things. You need to understand why someone else thinks the way they do, the, the way they do. Beautiful. And, and so, so I want to segue now into talking about a skeptic's path to enlightenment. Yeah, uh, yeah, let's do it. That's okay. Yeah. So, but, you know, to segue a little bit, I was, you know, on this note, I, I've been kind of flirting with, because uh, uh, politics is so polarized in the United States right now, I, I've been flirting a lot with just, well, actually, it's just a natural response for me, but I, I would kind of call it like political, like being a political agnostic kind of, mm -hmm. you know, where, where, where it's very much the attitude you know, both on social issues and, and politics, I employ, which is sort of like taking a step back and, and trying to, to observe the, the battlefield, so to speak, and, mm -hmm. and, and make up my own my own decisions and opinions based on sort of actually taking a step back and trying to look, you know, as best I can through compassion, not just through my own self-interest, right? Mm -hmm. um, but this idea of agnostic, just go ahead, I was going to say this idea of agnosticism, I, you know, in that, how, you know, you know, moving into a skeptic's path to enlightenment, because I'd love to know how mm. that kind of connects even to how we do our work of, of, you know, embodying flexibility and, and, and embody in our own practice, obviously, but also, you know, being able to mirror that in our work, because for me, that's such a, that's such a like core value of the work mm -hmm. I do, where I think some people assume I call it Buddhism mentoring or meditation or med Buddhist meditation mentoring or whatever, but actually it's more about training in, in, in some knowledge and then using flexibility to work with that knowledge as a path, a meditation mm. path. But sorry, you, you had something to say, but I'd love to hear oh, how no, this no, relates no. to skeptic's path for you, you know, skeptic's path to enlightenment. Yeah, how does it relate to skeptic's path? I think that's a good yeah. place to go. So the, the point of a skeptic's path to enlightenment is that I got invited to teach meditation, in particular, Lam Rim meditation. So in, in our tradition, there's, there's um, it's a thousand year old tradition of the Lam Rim, which ordered the, the Buddha taught this vast array of teachings, many of them contradictory actually. And so the Lam Rim ordered those teachings and resolved a lot of confusion and, and conflict and even kind of ethical problems of its time and gave this, this quite succinct, clear, not necessarily easy, <laughs> but, but path to follow in order to do what the Buddha did, ideally, you know, attain enlightenment. Yeah. So we, we study and practice that it starts with um, 
you know, the how how precious it is to be alive <laughs> and to have a body and to have some freedom and and, and opportunity in life. And then it, it ends with, you know, the how to have universal compassion for all beings and the ultimate nature of reality, the interdependent nature of reality. So I was invited to teach this. This is how we were leading meditations at Sei Chen Ling. And I used the traditional outlines at first, but we would advertise the courses as open to anybody, you don't have to be Buddhist. Yet with the topics and even the first topic of the preciousness of life, immediately you hit these Buddhist beliefs. I think what mm -hmm. most people would call beliefs. Um, for example, the preciousness of life starts off by saying life's so precious because you've had an infinite stream of lives before where you were um, a, a, a turtle, a ghost, a, a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> and then all, and now you're human, which is at the best form. And so you better take advantage of it because you might be born um, in a hell realm later. Or mm. So you see in one sentence, right at the beginning of the Lam Rim, it, it posits karma, um, other realms, and past and future lives, which yeah. are probably the three big things about Buddhism that science doesn't support right now. They might be true, actually, and I might believe in them. In fact, in <laughs> fact, I am actually quite convinced by a number of those things and maybe yeah. not in exactly the form that I was taught. Um, so what I came to, I, I went slowly, you know, I, but, but I saw there were some very, very negative reactions when I was leading certain meditations. And I thought that was a real shame. Um, mm. And so I started to think and talk to my teachers, you know, well, it seems like we could adapt these meditations, which are all in the tradition of analytical meditation, you know, meditations mm -hmm. that use thoughts and feelings to steer your mind towards some virtuous state, you know, a, a state of greater happiness and, and insight and compassion. So um, my teachers were encouraging in this and the Dalai Lama has written a couple of books on this too, like beyond religion. You know, you couldn't say it more clearly. The time has come <laughs> <laughs> to go beyond religion, uh, ethics for a new millennium. And so yeah. I started making notes over the years of how to adapt some of these meditations to a secular form. And then about three years ago, my life changed. So I had more time to finally work on this. And so I founded this organization with my buddy, Stephen Butler, who you know, yeah. and um, made a concerted effort to make a wholly secular form of the Lamrim, trying to preserve as much as possible of the, the experience and the benefit of mm -hmm. transforming your mind while only grounding it in what science and um, modern psychology currently say is is um, supportable about the mind and, and about reality. So that's that's skeptics' path in a nutshell. And we started as a podcast, not not because the goal was to create a podcast, but because it's such a great medium to test things, to reach people, to be right in people's ears, which is so close to thought. And it's a combination of lectures on the topics that make you can let you just think about think about the ideas, you know, because a big part of analytical meditation is you do it out in the world as you encounter conflicts and just as you see reality. And then also meditations, guided meditations, which is from this, from, from all the Buddhist traditions, the, the, it's so essential to meditate, right? There's no way yeah. to get a deep felt, uh, what they call realization, you know, much deeper, uh, something that it's like it, um, it's like you feel it in every cell of your body. You yeah. know, like when you fall in love, that kind of yeah. feeling, that's that, that level, that, that type, that level of understanding in general, I don't think can come except through meditation. So, so that's Skeptic's Path. It started out as a podcast and um, now there's a few more, 
a few more steps. You know, we did three years as a podcast and then um, piloting a course at the Jamyang Center in London for two years. Now we're going to have our first online course, which is launching cool. in March, which is based on that Jamyang course. And I'm also working on a book to, that will come out in the fall. So, so it's moving from the podcast, which was really testing the idea. I really wanted to develop the ideas with an audience, um, get feedback to uh, from 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 the audience and from teachers um, before putting it into a more structured form. Yeah, wonderful, beautiful. Um, I'm looking forward to to the, to the course and the, the book too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so. You know, this, this whole idea of skepticism to me, it's sort of like, it, it sort of feels like a, it's a very natural part of Buddhism. You know, that's, that's one area I wanted to explore with you today. But, mm-hmm. but before that, I'm just kind of curious your, your own relationship to skepticism, because you kind of named some, um, you know, why you started a skeptic's path to enlighten yeah. the podcast and now the course in the book. Um, so there's this sense of, of how you're working with others, but how, how do you relate to it? Because maybe we can... <laughs> You know, we yeah, probably share a so, lot there. Yeah. yeah. So when I came in, I was, well, uh, first of all, I think it's worth defining skepticism because skepticism yeah. is not cynicism. So cynicism yeah. is when you just reject things outright without even um, analyzing their claims because of, you know, you have certain hard, steadfast beliefs. It's really another mm-hmm. form of belief is being a yeah. cynic. So For a sure. skeptic, I really like the idea of a rational skeptic, which is someone who is curious yet critical. So combining those two things. So you're curious enough to be open to all kinds of ideas as they come by. There's so many amazing, interesting ideas and, and so much evolution too. We're quite early in, in humans' ability to understand our minds and the universe. Um, but then criticality, hmm. uh, looking at ideas and, and using whatever instruments you have to critically probe whether something may be true or not, or beneficial or harmful. There's kind of it's kind of different way you can say true or false or beneficial. Beneficial, harmful, or sort of the the Buddhist ways in general of of testing yeah, things. Virtuous, non-virtuous. If we want. Yeah, to virtuous, more, uh, non-virtuous. <laughs> so, uh, and that it's not all Buddhist. I mean, the Buddha did say that. There's a famous quotes from the Buddha where he says, you know, test these teachings like gold, you know, in the old days that you'd test gold by like chewing it and stabbing it and all these, all these different ways to see if something was really gold or not. And that's the famous quote from the Buddha about yeah. being critical, but not all Buddhist lineages actually, um, uh, take that on the lineage mm-hmm. that we are in this Indo-Tibetan lineage that came from the Nalanda monastery in particular is very, very strong, as you know, on this yeah. aspect of criticality and, um, testing and debate and especially logic, you know, using yeah. the power of like logic, <clears throat> logical philosophy, uh, and applying logic to ethics, logic to the, you know, the nature of reality and logic to human behavior. So I really like that. It doesn't appeal to every type of person, you know? So many people, it's a different type of path that's more devotional, like a purely mm-hmm. devotional path where they're just deeply inspired by another person's example, you know, which I think mm-hmm. you and I both experienced that part too. But the logic critical debate part is the one that skeptics path is, is very much inspired by. And so when I started out, I didn't accept any of those things. I was I was kind of a head scratcher about reading. The Dalai Lama is supposed to be the 14th Dalai Lama. 
But you know, the Dalai Lama's own criticality really inspired me because he even said, I was reading some of his books and he said, I'm only sure about two of the past Dalai Lamas. He said, like, he's he like, said maybe I, know, I was them. Yeah, or something yeah like maybe, that. Like, maybe yeah. I was them. Yeah. yeah. Like, because even he has said, you know, there may be some, some fallibility. So I, I really like how open he is to that. And in his books, he's, he's also, you know, talked about karma, for example, yeah. recently this book with Tubton Children, there's this long series of, of books that, that have come out. And in some, this one called Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. Mm. And he talks about karma in that book very lucidly. And he says, you know, my perspective now is that the material world operates according to the physical laws, mm. you know, more or less. Mm-hmm. Our psychological world operates to some other set of rules, you know, that, that he would call karma, which is these seeds that when you, when you do negative things, they have some negative result later in your mind. When you do positive things, they keep building up positive things. There's support from that, from neuroscience. The principle of neuroplasticity is, Mm -hmm. says exactly the same thing. Um, Not across lifetimes, of course, just in, (laughs) just in this lifetime, but that if you have a thought, whenever you have a thought, it reinforces that neural pathway. So you're more likely to have it. And that's how you form habits. A habit takes about two months to form if you mm. keep working at it. And you can create good habits and bad habits. So these things are very... But but the things I was skeptical about was really most of Buddhism's claims except the psychological ones to start. Because it was obvious. The evidence that practicing Tibetan Buddhism would make you like a happy, compassionate, effective, wise person was immediately clear from the people I met who (laughs) had practiced it for a long time, especially the Dalai Lama. Um, So I believed that actually right away. There seemed to be a lot of evidence that the path had this result, but I was quite skeptical about a lot of the more far out aspects of Buddhism, like past and future lives, karma, and other realms too. You know, the idea that there's an actual hell and that there's higher realms and things like that. That's, that's a bit, a bit hard to accept. So yeah, those are the things I was skeptical about, I don't know how far you want to get into this because some of them I have become convinced about and some that I still have a lot of doubts about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I would like to know. I mean, I mean, first, you know, I'd like to center this kind of, you know, I call it a process oriented approach, you know, one of the ways I name working with skepticism and and I do create a difference, but I I like how you use cynicism. I, Mm -hmm. I use the word doubt. So like, um, I mean, doubt is one of those, um, mental factors that actually in Buddhism can go either way. It can be both positive and, and negative. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think in this way, when some people claim to be a skeptic or they're, they're, let's say they're practicing skepticism, they're just looking one way, you know, I find. I mean, mm-hmm. I find this in myself, you know, like like if there's something I don't like, I'm looking one way. I'm not looking back at, at my dislike, you know what I mean? I'm mm-hmm. not asking questions or I'm not critiquing why do I dislike this? I mean, I do I do that as a practitioner, but when I'm when I'm in a strong reaction, obviously I'm stuck in the reaction, so I'm not doing that. Yeah. So so there's this kind of sense of like you know I would say like skepticism is is, is actually embedded in Buddhism, but it's that it's that two way critique. Yeah. You know? So so it's kind of like one thing I was thinking about. Yeah. Talking. yeah. Well, I mean, one of the biggest things to be skeptical in Buddhism is about your own thoughts. <laughs> and there's <laughs> yeah. this famous phrase, you know, don't believe everything you think. That is probably the most important thing to be skeptical about is mm. your own thoughts. And yeah. that that if something pops into your mind, that does not mean it's true. It doesn't even mean it's important. <laughs> it, it just means <laughs> it popped into your mind. And yeah. 
It's yeah. worth, it's there and it's worth accepting it. That's mindfulness. I accept that that thing just popped into my mind. But then do I have to act on it? Where yeah. did that idea even come from? Is that even an idea that, quote, I believe? Like, mm -hmm. is it something I read? Is it something I heard on YouTube? Is it something I want people to think I believe? Yeah. Um, I think that kind of, in, that's and that starts to become the essence of analytical meditation. Is yeah. That's where mindfulness transitions in. Mindfulness meditation transitions into analytical meditation quite quickly as soon mm. as you start to question what comes into your mind. And they work together really nicely, right? Because yeah. you something pops into your mind, you can observe it, you can accept it, you can be gentle and compassionate with yourself. But then analytical meditation can say, okay, is this harmful or beneficial mm. to me? Um, is this true? Or my ba mm. from my the, the, the deeper ways that I understand you know, that things to be true or false or, or virtuous or non-virtuous. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. My, my friend, Elizabeth Mattis Namgel, who just agreed mm. to be on the podcast. So she's coming. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, she, she has a book called the power of an open question. And, and, and I love mm. the way she talks about, um, I, I talk about it as a process oriented approach to life and the mind and everything basically. But, but, um, I think, I think it's it's basically uh, uh, synonymous to talk about it as an open question where it's like, you know, for me, analytical meditation over the years, by the way, just for the listeners out there in in, in Tibetan Buddhism, we have we do a combo or, or we work with um, uh, kind of an equal combo of what's called Chigom and Jokom in Tibetan. And and uh, Chigom represents the analytical meditation Scott is talking about where it's the sense of chewing something over. So we're, we're chewing over like, you know, the impermanent nature of something. Or mm -hmm. as Scott said, we might be reflecting on or chewing on um, uh, what is the nature of our human rebirth in, in relation to that being precious and, and valuable. And we have all different kinds of analytical meditations or working with Chigom. And then Jokom, is resting meditation where, mm. where, you know, shamatha or meditative awareness is a type of, of jokum. But when we do analytical meditation in the Tibetan Buddhist lineages, we, we generally do, it's not just analytical. It's usually a combo of chigum and jokum where we rest mm -hmm. on whatever temporary conclusion or insight we've had, you know, through, through the chigum or the analytical meditation. So, so sorry, just a little, little, <laughs> little break to introduce that. And uh, for those of the, the listeners who don't, know that uh or haven't studied the tradition that that much um but anyways what i wanted to say was for me the analytical process the chigong process it's almost like an open question when i'm doing mm -hmm. it now it took me a lot of years to learn how to do that because you know often in the west we analyze for like we analyze for security and safety which i think mm -hmm. is a very bad decision <laughs> you mm -hmm. know it hasn't worked out for me so well and then we analyze for like a surety and, and actually mm -hmm. like a definitive judgment. This is how it mm. is. And in Buddhism, I found it's quite different because it's more of an analytical meditation or curiosity or, or process or all these different ways to talk about it. It's more of this open question yeah, that, that we're, but it's a question we're not answering. We're just continually asking it. You know? yeah. 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 I think that's the key. There's a lot of different ways of saying that, but yeah, I think that the essence of meditation, same thing for me over the years, it seems like the essence yeah. of meditation is asking questions, like especially ones that can't ever be answered. The question yeah. like, who am I? You know, is, is one of the best <laughs> questions. Like, who, who am I exactly? Even without yeah. you know much training, asking yourself that question is quite valuable. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so, so let's see, we probably got to, you know, another 10. Actually, Scott, would you, would you be open to like a, 
I'm sorry to put you on the spot <laughs> we're recording, but would you be open to a part two? Because I just think we got so much to talk about. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, totally. Yeah, let's let's do more again. That's great. Yeah, because yeah. I, I think we meandered into some really useful topics, actually. Yeah. And, and there's so much more I want to talk to you about. But yeah, yeah, we'll no, we'll just come back and do more. It's great. Yeah, but in our last, you know, five, ten minutes or something, uh, you know, maybe I'll open up to you a kind of like, what, what would you, any, anything on your mind that, that um, you know, you want to close out? Our, our part one with uh, anything from what we discussed or anything around you know skepticism i think we can keep going with this obviously and there's so much to talk about about the practice of it uh the how it relates to traditional buddhism um mm-hmm. all of that yeah yeah well <laughs> you know when i talked to robert thurman he said um because i asked him about he's one of my real heroes and he yeah. said so many wonderful things. I think one of the biggest ones was that very early on, in fact, it was very close by. I live here in Berkeley and he gave a talk in Berkeley in the first years I was studying Buddhism. And he said, you know, what the, the root of all of our problems, he said, he's quite a dramatic speaker, you know, he said, yeah. the root of all of our problems, he said, do you want to know the root of all of our problems? Everyone's like, yeah, well, it's this, it's that, out of everyone that's out of everyone in this in this room right now in this big hall out of everyone in this town out of everyone in this country out of everyone in this world maybe out of everybody what if there are other worlds what if there are other beings mm. out of all of them i think i'm more important <laughs> than everyone else <laughs> and i think that's that's the thing he says to be skeptical about that if you mm. if you really look into the root of why we suffer and and why we feel and these problems like anxiety and depression i think which are the most yeah. like the problems that plague people the most in our culture that that um that belief is at the root of it this idea that um you could call it self-centeredness and it's confusing to say that because a lot of people hearing that will think well, no, I actually think the opposite. I actually think I'm an imposter and I'm I'm weaker, you know, I'm less mm. important than other people. But from the, the Buddhist perspective, that is also a manifestation of ego. And it's hard to hear that. Um, yeah, it's hard to it's, hear that. But it's still a, a focus on yourself that I, I, the strong I, is less important than everyone else. Or yes. it's more important. All Almost all yeah. of us fall onto one spectrum or the other of, you know, either like ego or um, small-mindedness. Yeah. And so getting rid of that completely, this is what Robert Thurman says to be skeptical about. Be skeptical of the idea that you're an independent, autonomous being and that you're separate from other other beings. And of course, this, this is actually the most advanced teaching in Buddhism, but it's also the ultimate antidote. And as you go through the Lam Rim, there are these like fine, coarser to finer antidotes um, from, yeah, just thinking how precious your life is, which is just that alone is, it could be great for your, if everybody thought that that's actually enough, I think in many ways to live a meaningful that, that, life. I did a three month retreat on that. It healed a lot of my, my trauma actually. That's yeah. It's extraordinary it. because, yeah. yeah, because you realize this is what I have. This is all there is, is yeah. today. And what do I want to do? What do I want to do with this day? Do I want to binge watch Netflix, like maybe a little bit, but, <laughs> but you know, what, what good can I do on this day? But well, yeah, this I, I bigger, a, yeah. Go ahead. You go know, I was just gonna say a lot of us experience a lot of 
feelings of worthlessness, you know, that, yeah. that, that, that we're yeah. not a worthy person. And, and, you know, just reflecting on that and really going deep into perfect human rebirth as mm-hmm. one example, really helped me to work with that. To so just actually start to see there, there's a sense of not just worth, but like value to this human body, you know, how it can be used. Yeah. It's so extraordinary, right? It's, it's yeah. so extraordinary that, that there was, okay. Yeah, actually this is a nice, this is a nice quote for skeptics. And it was actually one of the ones that, that helped me a lot in understanding yeah. the preciousness of life is that Voltaire, you know, I love reading and I read that Voltaire who's an extraordinary writer who really transformed society with his writing in many, mm. many ways. Like he did, um, you know, he's responsible for ending duels actually by making fun wow. of them by making by making fun of how stupid it was for macho macho european dudes to shoot each other over their <laughs> over their arguments he 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 made duels seem stupid which is a much <laughs> better way to, to it. it's a much better way to transform society to get people that's what that's what um steven pinker says is that society is um, transformed actually by people thinking things are stupid and funny <laughs> <laughs> you know from from respecting them but what voltaire said was it is no mess. It is no less more miraculous to live two lives than to live one, mm. and and that that really brought home the preciousness of life to me. Is wow! It's amazing just to be alive. It's way more amazing actually to be alive at all than to mm. be alive twice or three times or infinite times. Just the fact because this is all we have. This is all we have, mm. and we can see it see it around us. And there's so much opportunity, and you can see the examples of other other people look look how much some people make of their lives um and not necessarily famous people you know just everybody caretakers nurses um doctors without borders there's so many people social rights activists there's so many extraordinary people doing extraordinary things with their life like including the people listening you know it's not like you know we're all we're all part of it so i think that is a nice uh a nice view of skepticism is actually to see the wonder in what you can prove and establish. Mm. Look at this universe, a 14 billion year old universe, 14 billion light year sphere of like 14 billion, no, 28 billion light year sphere with 14 billion galaxies inside of it. Like it's, it's, or I think it's more actually, it's like a hundred billion galaxies they say and a hundred billion stars in our Milky Way. Like I get very, the, the awe that um, people used to feel from the religious awe of infinite lifetimes mm. or, um, you know, the idea of very highly realized deities and things like that. I think for a lot of people that awe can be replaced with the awe of science. Like yeah. the, So not using science to prove meditation works or Buddhism works, which there is lots of evidence for, but using the awe of science that, that um, Giordano Bruno once said, your God is so much bigger than you think, you know, as they were burning mm. him on the stake for saying there were wow. galaxies. You know, they, he was being burnt. He, they, they, the wow. Catholic Church burnt him for saying there were galaxies. And he said, yeah. like, I believe in God too. <laughs> like, don't burn me. But God is way bigger than you think. <laughs> God is so much bigger than me. And I think um, some of that reasoning, I think, is very, we can use science actually to have the same sense of awe. Because I think awe is this extraordinary feeling that... Um, it, I went to a great talk just two days ago on awe by mm. this Dasher Keltner who's a professor here at Berkeley and just wrote a book on awe. But he said, what awe is, is, is a simultaneous feeling of smallness and bigness, <laughs> you know, and like your relationship to that, that you feel quite humbled on the one sense by the vastness of something, whether it's space yeah. or time or love or, or whatever. Um, but then you feel part of it. 
you don't feel separate from yeah. it. So, so I, and I think science for me is um, one of the best gateways to that, as well as certain like emotional experiences you have in relationships or, or, or in deep meditation. So I think that yeah. awe is accessible to everybody um, and you don't need to believe in anything to have it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's a sense of like, I mean, going back to, you know, maybe we'll have to bookmark it here. I'd, you know, yeah. I'd love to continue our talk uh, in part two about, you know, just one of the many things I want to talk to you about, about like how skepticism relates to the actual mm. practice of Buddhism and the study of yeah. Buddhism. Because, you know, for me, there's this element of, you know, like I'm doing it anyways, whether whether there's a, a religious or spiritual path or yeah. not, you know, where, where I'm, I'm gauging and, and, and kind of not quite an, well analyzing, but also just gauging myself and my existence against something against another person, like my relationship to them or the world around me or my work or whatever. And in Dharma, you know, we do that th through the path. So it's almost like for mm -hmm. me, the Dharma has become over the years, it's actually become, it's become less and less each year, a path of belief and more mm -hmm. a path of like something to, to kind of like, you know, uh hit my uh, uh what do you call it uh, like squash ball against you know like like to to check you know and, yeah. and question my existence and question reality and question my thoughts and emotions and so i think there's so you know i was going to say around awe just briefly is that mm. um you know w within that process there's a sense of awe in buddhism um you know elizabeth also another person who talks about awe a lot in relation to the dharma um awe it seems to be the sense where we where we can yeah it, it it is that kind of bigness and smallness that then releases into kind of a mm. uh, uh on the buddhist path into like a an a, a not knowing like mm -hmm. like sorry a, like a like a willingness to 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 let be or let go and yeah. to rest in like this sense of like it's not quite confoundedness it's just sort of like uh and then we rest and then we can actually find some wisdom there you know, within the Buddhist yeah, you know, one of my brother's teachers, this is kind of like a, a koan, but when my, yeah. part of how I got into Buddhism, my brother was always telling me such funny stories about the teachings he went to when, um, when he was learning Buddhism and I was just watching. And one of the stories he told me once was going to a teacher and the teacher said, you know that feeling you have when you're about to say something and you forgot it? Mm -hmm. And my brother's like, yeah. And the teacher said, <laughs> well, that's the that's the feeling you want to have all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not so appealing to most people, I think, you know. <laughs> oh, but it's kind of a. But I really do think, and also the the deeper you go, you know, there is there is nothing to believe in actually. Yeah. When you yeah. really probe it, when you probe the nature of reality, there's like everything is a convention. There's conventional reality and ultimate reality, and the conventions of things that have labels and solidity and like parts that have come together. Um, they're conventions that help yeah. us function in the world. They do exist, but they only exist like condi conditionally and relationally and, inter yeah. In yeah. Relationally and interdependently. Yeah. So the things you quote believe in, um, they don't ultimately exist, which doesn't, as you know, doesn't mean they don't exist, but <laughs> they exist way more subtly and interdependently and like flimsily, you know, like as yeah. you, as you look into them, they, it all dissolves and it, it doesn't mean there's no morality or anything like that. It's just the, the complexity and interdependence and like infinite regress of reality doesn't offer a, a final answer, but, um, but it's a question you can keep asking. And then it gives you this, yeah. an experience that goes beyond words, right? Like that's what, that's the, the, the frustrating thing 
about talking about Dharma is, is the words aren't the experience. Like they say, you know, the map isn't the territory, you know, a map is not the place you're visiting. And I think Buddhists can confuse that sometimes that the words are the experience, but they aren't. We each, it's so nice because we each get to have our unique experience. The Dalai Lama once said, everyone gets enlightened in their own way, Mm. which I love. Like when I was really worried about losing yourself, like into some void and merging with cosmic consciousness or something, you know, I heard the Dalai Lama say, you know, everyone gets enlightened. I think it actually answered my question. Like I got to write the question and he answered it in some, Uh one of these public talks. And he said, oh, everyone gets enlightened in their own way. That's so cool. Everyone I never heard that before that he, that he said and that. And I love that. It made me yeah. so happy to hear that. And you see it in the Dalai Lama because he yeah. has huge personality, yet no ego. Like you can still yeah. have personality and friends too and best friends, things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no ego. So that's very Yeah, inspiring. totally. I think that's one of the difficult things for people to grasp is that mm-hmm. there can be no grasping and no you know, personal grasping to an autonomous yeah. self, let's put it that way. Yeah. And yet a lot of activity unfolding, beautiful yeah. activity like the Dalai Lama. You know, I never heard him. That's really wonderful. That uh, Thank you for sharing that quote from you. It reminded me of another quote, which is kind of, it's different, mm-hmm. but, but, uh, you know, where Chogyam Trumpa said, uh, uh, no one claps for you when you get linked. <laughs> that's that's funny. Sequ- Single quote helped me so yeah. much. It has just helped me to let go of so much. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually one of those things about uh, um, at least our tradition, probably all the Buddhist traditions, is that you know you're not supposed to say anything about mm. your realizations. You're not supposed to admit you're enlightened or a bodhisattva. And you can see that that ties back to what you started out with with the the authority, yeah. because you can see the problem of a world where it's okay to say you have realizations and, and that you're yeah. enlightened because then a lot of people will hijack that to yeah. um, manipulate people and to trick people. So you want to watch out. Anyone who says they have those, those achievements yeah, that's, probably Yeah, that's one doesn't. of my red flags I share with people. <laughs> yeah. Someone even like, if they're talking about their, their realization and awakening, just run the other way. Because either yeah. they don't, one, they have no clue what awakening actually is, or two, they're totally yeah. a charlatan. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's but it's a, it's a nice aspect of this path, like the couple aspects of it that keep it relatively pure, you know, in this lineage is like, you can't teach unless someone invites you to, and yeah. you know, you, you can't brag about <laughs> your, your realization. Yeah. So, you know, going back to, to the beginning of our conversation too, you know, just to bookend this, uh, you know, Geshe Tsolga, the, the same teacher that, that your brother shares with me, he was. Yeah. Yeah. My, he, and he, he was, was my teacher too. Yeah. He was an yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. teacher. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah, really amazing teacher. Again, similar to Geshe Dapa, very like kind of like under the radar, you know, amazing scholar, but also amazing practitioner. Um, and uh, and and I felt had realization. And he um, he he, you know, we got in, when I got to know him more because I was his I was his attendant and, and cook for three years. So yeah, I got I got to know yeah. him really well. I lived with so him for lucky. three years. Yeah, 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 it was pretty. Yeah, that was like one of my. I would say that was. I could name a few formative experiences in my life, and that was one of them mm-hmm. that would be included. Um, yeah, so fortunate. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mean, unfortunately, I probably wasted all of it being a 20, <laughs> 21 year old idiot. But, anyways, um, I have to forgive myself. So, um, <laughs> um, he he actually was a was a big um, uh, skeptic of the Toku system. Uh, he oh, wasn't a okay. fan. 
He wasn't a fan. And the Tukul system, for those of you who don't know, is the system of recognizing reincarnated or incarnated mm-hmm. lamas from life to life, and giving them status and title and education in mm-hmm. that role. And so, um, anyways, and, and, and the reason was he felt if, if someone has, if someone is coming back, having taken the realization from the last life, they're going to show it, you know, they're just going to yeah. naturally be yeah. uh, an incredible, compassionate, useful skill you know with skillful means and and knowledgeable Mm -hmm. person and and kind of that that stuck with me for 20 years you know that that of like also sokni rimshay my one of my main teachers he kind of says um uh more or less the same thing where he's like um uh if you want to benefit others uh transform yourself you know and and you don't have to like think how do i benefit others or how do i help or how to do this it just happens you just do yeah. it because you've transformed yourself. So it's kind of become when I when I kind of get out of line with myself, I remember those and just come back to that simple of like, I'm just doing this moment. You know, I'm this weird, you know, Jewish, Italian, Buddhist, you know, strange guy. And I'm just trying to do this moment and that's it. And I'm trying yeah. to put my best effort into it. And so I don't know, there's something there. But but man, this has been wonderful, Scott. And um um, I really am looking actually forward to part two because I think we can go more into this this area of how skepticism meets the actual practice yeah. of the Buddhist path, right? We didn't talk about that much. Yeah, no, let's talk about that more next yeah. time. I really enjoy talking to you. Yeah, man. And um, uh, for those of you out there, please check out A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment, incredible podcast if you haven't listened. And, um, and you have the course coming out in March, correct? Yeah, our first course is going to start, I think it's on March 5th. So if you go to our website, skepticspath.org, you can sign up and um, I'd love to join you if you find it. It's really 10 years of work of, you know, working with um, Dharma centers and then the podcast and then at the Jamyang Center. So I'm really looking forward to having it reach anybody, anybody in the world who can attend. So um, consider joining that if you'd like to learn more about analytical meditation. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thanks, my friend. It's, it's really been, thank you, Scott. It's been this is great. Great to this see is you. Awesome. You're awesome. <laughs> <All right. laughs> okay, take care.